Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Mulan. Continuing their global mythology exploration, Disney turned next to China with a legend dating back between 1300 and 1600 years. A simple tale of a girl who rides off to war disguised as a boy in place of her father ended up proving massively resonant with modern day audiences, and it was just the right kind of resourceful female hero they needed to close out their 90s renaissance with. Once again joining us, Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. In the original Chinese legend of Fa Mulan, she was never discovered as a girl, unlike the film. Which seems like it isn't making the most of the tension that uh, having this scenario in the core of the story affords it. Uh, the earliest accounts of the legend state that she lived during the Northern Wei Dynasty, which is 386 to 534. However, another version reports that Mulan was requested as a concubine by Emperor Yang of Sui, China, who reigned between 604 and 617. Wait a second. If Mulan was requested as a concubine, but they didn't find out she was a girl... That's a different version of the story. I would imagine so. That's the version of the story where they did find out she was a girl, and she ended up going down a slightly different path. So basically when she hugs the emperor at the end, he's like, ooh, okay then. Um, well, it's, it's got something to do with she becomes... Uh, the, the person who discovers her is actually um, the uh, princess. Uh-huh. And um, she sees... The princess is quite um, uh, militaristic herself. And she sees a kindred spirit in Milan and they become sworn sisters. Gotcha. Um, and then oh, that's something... Cool. Well, it doesn't end pleasantly. That's not the, cool. the whole being requested as a, a concubine thing makes Milan feel so much shame that she ends up killing herself. Oh, that's not cool at all. Yeah, so that's kind of why they didn't go down that route, I think. <laughs> I suppose, technically, that that, that story, the, uh, the the moral of this tale is don't treat women like objects. The moral of that version of the story was, ladies, don't do what Milan did. Uh, don't go off to war because uh, nobles will find you out and want to put you in their, really? their concubine houses. See, I took that as like, you know how I was complaining about Victor Hugo's uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame when it was basically just a, a, you know, would you please stop treating the poor like animals story. Maybe. It's it's very difficult to uh, correctly interpret very, very old legends. legends. Yeah. The benefit of having Mulan discovered 
before the kind of final victory is won means that she gets to win as a woman. Yeah. Not having without Very having to true. on her own the, terms. Without the deception. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the film correctly omits the foot binding but includes numerous other anachronisms such as the Ming era forbidden city in Beijing the Sui capital was near modern Xi'an although Mulan is set in northern China and hang on it's not Xi'an it's Xi'an as in the terracotta warriors though Mulan is set in northern China and employs her Mandarin personal name uh, Disney give her the Cantonese pronunciation far for her family name so yeah there's anachronisms Mulan originally began as a short, straight-to-video film entitled China Doll about an oppressed and miserable Chinese girl who is whisked away by a British prince charming to happiness in the West. Then Disney consultant and children's book author Robert D. Sansusi suggested, suggested making a movie of the Chinese poem The Song of Fa Mulan, and Disney combined the two separate projects. Development for Mulan began in 1994 after the production team sent a select group of artistic supervisors to China for three weeks to take photographs and drawings of local landmarks for inspiration and to soak up local culture. Dan, have you ever been sent on a research trip like that? Uh, that's generally going to be the very hot, top leadership of the team. Like, they get to go the, hang out with lions for a few weeks. Basically, yeah. Like the art director, the main producer, the directors. Gotcha. Right. Like lead writer. Just that. Just the most important people are going to go and gotcha. do that and then relate everything else to everybody to the rest of the team. At the time when I asked that, Dan was actually working for Pixar. The filmmakers decided to change Mulan's character to make her more appealing and selfless and to turn the art style closer to Chinese paintings with a watercolour and simpler design as opposed to the details of The Lion King and The Hunchback. Uh, Disney was keen to promote Mulan to the Chinese, hoping to replicate their success with the 1994 Lion King, which was one of the country's highest grossing Western films at the time. That's the thing. The Lion King was huge all over the world. It's not just the domestic gross. They've got to really hit the other countries. You think China cares about Hercules? Disney also hoped it might smooth over relations with the Chinese government, which had soured after the release of Kundun, a Disney-funded biography of the Dalai Lama that the Chinese government considered politically provocative. China had threatened to curtail business negotiations with Disney over that film, and as the government only accepts 10 Western films per year to be shown in their country, Mulan's chances of being accepted were low. Finally, after a year's delay, the Chinese government did allow the film a limited Chinese release, but only after the Chinese New Year, so as to ensure that local films dominated the more lucrative holiday market. Box office income was low due to both the unfavourable release date and rampant piracy. Chinese people also complained that Mulan's depiction was too foreign-looking and the story was too different from the myth. So I guess it's kind of like British people going, Robin Hood wasn't a fox! Kyle sucks. Not so much that, more Robin Hood didn't have an American accent. Robin Hood didn't have an American accent. Did I wrong you in another life, Will Scarlet? Where does this intolerable hatred for me come from? Oh, that one. Kyle Suggs described the visuals as breathtaking and Dan Jardine described them as magnificently animated. While Jaribet gave Mulan three and a half stars out of four in his written review, he said that Mulan is an impressive achievement with a story and treatment ranking with Beauty and the Beast and the Lion King. That's praise indeed. Negative reviews described it as disappointing, and the songs are accused of not being memorable and slowing down the pace of the movie. Ed Gonzalez of Slant magazine criticised the film as soulless in its portrayal of Asian society. This movie was also the subject of uh, comment from feminist critics. Uh, Mimi Nguyen says the film pokes fun at the ultimately repressive gender roles that seek to make Mulan a domesticated creature. 
Nadja Labi agreed, saying that there is a lyric in the film that gives the lie to the bravado of the entire girl power movement. She pointed out that Mulan needed to become a boy in order to accomplish what she did. Kathleen Carlin, an assistant professor of English at the University of Oregon, also criticised the film's portrayal of gender roles. In order to even imagine female heroism, we're placing it in the realm of fantasy. Pam Coates, the producer of Mulan, said that the film aims to present a character who exhibits both masculine and feminine influences, being both physically and mentally strong. It is a damn shame that a film like this actually ended up making um, feminists angry, because that's kind of an own goal. I, I can kind of see where they're coming from and it's something which has had it's an argument which has had a bit of a renewed um, vigour lately because of the comparison of Sansa and Arya, Arya. Mm. Uh, because the, the part of the issue that a lot of people have with the way Sansa is presented particularly in the TV show is that because she is feminine and or is traditionally feminine and she embraces the whole uh, wardrobe obsession and uh, being besotted with romance and all that kind of thing. She is very much portrayed as being therefore less acceptable to the audience and Arya is much more, you know, that's the character that you're supposed to get behind because she is more like a boy. And there is that slight... I suppose, concern that the message given is girls, if you want to be who you, um, you know, if you want to fulfill your, your potential, basically you have to embrace the masculine. And that's the only way that, that you'll ever do it. When Sharon said that Game of Thrones was in its maybe third season, in subsequent years, Sansa Stark has hardened up a hell of a lot more, put away all girlish things, and in fact become a merciless killer. Make of that what you will. I actually don't think that Mulan does do that. Um, I, th I think it does manage to um, get a more... Uh, uh, the idea of balance. Um, it may, Maybe not spot on, but it's obviously a, a key element of what they're trying to do. And when we talk about the songs, there's one specific um, pairing that I wanted to mention that kind of achieves that in my mind. But I can see how it wouldn't come across that way to everybody. I think, though, what you were saying about um, them wanting to replicate the, success, the worldwide success of The Lion King, there is something really key about The Lion King that none of these other films duplicate, and that is the fact that the characters are not humans. And that means that you're not trying to sell white-skinned characters in dark-skinned countries. You're not trying to sell a cultural representation of a particular country back to them and convince them that you've got it completely right when they might be sitting there going, you know how what? The Greeks were incensed by Hercules. It's <laughs> <laughs> not how we live. Indeed. But, That's but like yeah, the I accent, think folks. <laughs> any, any depiction, I mean, I really, really admire the, the whole um, trying to represent the, the various cultures that Disney have gone for in this period. You know, you've got the Native Americans and the, the uh, Paris and um, the. The Native Americans of Paris. No, no. And Paris. Paris. Ultimately, each one of those creates a small focus audience or excludes part of the, the intended audience. Lions? Who could possibly feel misrepresented by lions? It, it is seeped in African culture. I mean, the lions could still effectively just be an analogue for an African royal family. The revolution will not be televised. 
true, but the disconnect between what they look like and how you you project onto them. It's like I was saying about the whole bland gothic heroines. If you take everything away that's not a particular person, it makes it much easier for them to see themselves in that story. And I think if you... Um, part of what Mulan does well for me is in fact not the way that it's trying to reveal um, comment on the very restrictive gender roles in China, but how you can interpret a look at historical gender roles in a legendary China and how that might apply to um, a, a situation which is, while it wouldn't be perceived as being anywhere near as brutal, and I am really pleased that they left out any reference to foot binding because frankly that would have been scary you can see parallels because there's that distance because you can see it's obviously not meant to be a representation of the literal china yeah however it's not uh, an exact science you can't just do a film with uh, animals in it and suddenly somehow uh, get universal appeal no, they had to come out of a period of just doing dog cat and mouse movies yes and two of their worst films also. coming up chicken little and home on the range mm. Barnyard Adventures. Yeah. Mm. Apparently the Greek audiences did pan Hercules. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) A Greek Greek newspaper called it another case of foreigners distorting our history and culture just to suit their commercial interests. Fair enough. Mm, Yeah. It's, it's, Unfortunate. So what's the watchword we get from this? Either get it absolutely right and maybe leech out of it all, uh, you know, in doing so, take away from it what might constitute as the Disney treatment at all. To focus on specificity to the exclusion of universal appeal. Or don't do it at all. Don't ever address any other culture but your own. Well, no, I mean, I personally would take it as do the best you can to get it as sympathetic and accurate as you can so without losing... a lot of losing... what they did. Well, exactly. That's no, what no, they no, tried with Mulan. They, they did the best they could of, and they still hated it. That's kind of where I'm going with it. Do the best you can. Try to be as sympathetic as you can. Do it from a place of love rather than a place of mockery. And accept the fact that there are going to be some people mm. that aren't going to like it unless it's absolutely spot on. I mean, also bear in mind that angle of um, the the Chinese government only accepting a certain number of of Western produced films. Mm. You've got that element of basically, unless this comes out of China, we're going to hate it. Now, and that's not everybody, of course. That's another reason, by the way, why uh, uh, Transformers does really, really well each year. I'm assuming it's because China goes, yeah, we'll have that one. And it's one of the only 10 bloody films that they can watch that year that's not uh, Chinese. Well, I wonder if they get like film, like British films or f- French films or, or Indian films. What's their Bollywood if, scene like in China? I wonder if the 10 films a year thing still stands. It, it seems uh, ridiculously restrictive. Two or three of them have got to be Marvel films. <laughs> so then given how crucial the uh, Chinese market is now to a lot of yeah. film releases, I can't imagine I they're probably all... probably opened up a bit managed, now. Yeah, managing to compete for those 10 slots or it wouldn't be nearly as big a uh, as lucrative something to push for yeah hmm. yeah i think i think the essence of it is do it accept the fact that some people aren't going to like it i think they did i said this was a success it still only did 50 million more than hercules it got like 300 million versus 250 so i mean really you, you look at hercules you think disney are not proud of that you look at mulan if you're paying attention to the uh, all the extra stuff you'd, you'd think they were really proud of that one it's an intriguing 
selective contradiction. It really seems very forwardly obvious to how much Disney respects each individual film, really just by how much extra stuff is on the disc. Yeah, and It shouldn't be like that, but it bloody is. It shouldn't, but it becomes evidently clear what Disney thinks as soon as you click bonus features and see how long the list goes. If We're it's not just, getting a platinum edition of The Black Cauldron. No, I mean, if it's just Ever. a commentary and a sing-along, then you know they do not care for this film. Yeah, But is but, that to a degree because a lot of that um, material depends on the people who worked on it retrospectively being willing to sit down and talk about it? Yeah. And if they didn't have a good experience or they don't feel that what came out of it was their best work, they're not necessarily going to want to sit down and talk about it. Or just specifically, like, you know, if Disney are making a making of, it's going to be commissioned. They're going to get someone to talk about it. It really comes down to, you know, that they must have discussions when it comes to the DVD uh, and home market stage, which, interestingly, are going to become less and less as the years go on because this Blu-ray will be the last hard copy format or very likely to be. Wrong 4K. So Disney aren't really going to be ch- forced to think about producing new content for, to cover their old movies so much when, when digital distribution becomes the norm. And all of these films made more than Little Mermaid. Mm. Little Mermaid, Little Mermaid, I think, is maybe around the 211 million mark now. Mm. Or at least it was when it finished, 211 million, which... They haven't fallen below that yet. Granted, they've staffed up much larger now and are probably investing a lot more money per film. Mm. So like, they need to earn more as well. But these films are still doing quite well. Yeah. I suppose early in the uh, Disney Renaissance, uh, say around Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin stage, uh, up to The Lion King, they were still surprising people. They were still on this roll. After The Lion King, it became kind of, yeah, what else you got? And the immense popularity led to a weariness from certain people for the successful tropes Disney was dealing in. The Broadway musicals, the princess stories, the comedy sidekicks, the cultural appropriation. So I suppose that started to set in. It's important that we look at this now because we're in another one. We are smack bang in the middle of it. We're around the Lion King stage now with, um, with Frozen. At the time of editing, we're now at the Hercules stage with Moana. Same directors, Musker and Clements. We are, and we're seeing... I think it's fair to say that we're seeing Pixar in its post-Lion King stage right now. And I'm, it's, I'm hoping it's going to pull around to another big high point. Yeah. Like, like it has for Disney, because we're, we're in it again with Disney. Are we calling Toy Story 3 their Lion King? It's hard to say. I love Toy Story 3 I think it's fair to call Toy Story 3... It's if, a if not Toy Story three, then up. And I mean, I think Toy Story three is a good Lion King, like uh, comparison. And they're still making, for the most part, some pretty solid films. But uh, it's sort of like the uh, like Pocahontas, Hunchback, Hercules, Mulan. Like they're still good. They're still good. But it's not. <laughs> it's not surprising people anymore. And it's people know what to expect. And it feels a bit comfortable and safe. You can't just say it's still good. I can't not think. It's just a little slimy. It's still good. It's still good. (laughs) Part of the problem, though, is that um, you've got to take the marketing machine into account on this because what... It's impossible to say that the reason The Lion King was successful, as successful as it was, was solely down to quality and it just hitting the right appeal spot. That thing was marketed to hell. And 
that style being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed probably ultimately contributed to people's downward turn in interest in the Broadway musical style. And they're reaching the tipping point of that with Frozen. They're, you know, I mean, I know... The backlash on Let It Go. The backlash, the backlash. The bottom line is people get sick of having it rammed down their throat everywhere they turn. When the... You put on the radio and you've got the... Well, exactly, because that was not pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. But I think if people now start to say when the next one is a a musical style and the one after that, there is going to be an element of, oh, what else have you got? After Big Hero 6 was Zootopia, then Moana, then Ralph Breaks the Internet, Wreck-It Ralph 2, and then Frozen 2. And this is a new development I only just found out about. Disney, last October in 2017 shelved its Jack and the Beanstalk film, Gigantic. I was looking forward to that. That may work in their favour then, changing the style and, and not making people feel like they're just going to get influx with the same thing for a decade. Mm. It really may. I'm sorry to go off on a tangent on this one, no, but it's okay. it, 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 is, it is applicable because at this stage, Disney had many different choices to make after Mulan came out and they made a lot of choices and it seemed like they made all of those choices at once. <laughs> And just sort of stack them end to end and hope that one or two of them would hit. And they ended up uh, going down a really weird avenue or a series of weird avenues all at once. Okay. You're right. We do, especially after, I think basically after Tarzan. After Tarzan, yeah. Everything gets weird. Yeah. And they start trying a whole lot of different things and then none of them really land. I mean, a lot of them are great, but none of them, none of them pulled them out of their tailspin. Do you know what would have pulled them out of their tailspin? So anyway, back to the first second of Mulan. Right. Because <laughs> we haven't got off that yet. Um, I had never noticed before Mushu's in the title. Just a red dragon underneath the title of Mulan. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score hits you immediately. This is one of the last films he uh, composed for. They'd gone with Alan Menken so much in the past few years that suddenly uh, uh, Goldsmith came through. And he's not automatically who I would associate with um, this kind of film. I mean... He, he did uh, L.A. Confidential the year before, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he's famous for doing for bringing back Star Trek and introducing that da 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 Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, he, he did the, the, the haunting, otherworldly um, chaos of Alien, and uh, he's, he's much more sort of a classic Hollywood composer before then. The, the, the lovely painting is unfolding, and it show, it's kind of showing you this is what we're doing with our animation in this one. It kind of eases you into that with just blacks and whites on the, uh, on the, the, the canvas. They, they are right out to put you in a place. Yeah. The fact that they did pull in a existing film composer, I mean, Lion King was the other one they'd done in recent memory that, that where they had pulled in a film composer. Hans Zimmer, yeah. And the fact that this, the team involved with this project seems to be a lot of new blood, it, makes, it links this to Lion King in my mind a lot. Mm. It, for whatever reason. I mean, this is the first feature that they produced primarily in their Orlando studio. Yeah. Uh, and it seems, I mean, they're, the, direct, the directors at the helm are new. Tony Bancroft and Barry Cook, who were, they were Disney staff. They were staff animators and supervisors and stuff, but they hadn't directed anything yet. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's a lot of new faces in charge of this one with a film, sco- with a film composer handling the score. It, yeah, something, it, it links in my mind to Lion King a great deal. To their credit, this whole film 
seems extraordinarily well directed to me. Like mm. the sh- the shot composition, like a lot of these shots are beautifully composed, and there's a lot of really great subtle acting choices and great scene transitions. It it feels like there's a level of directing and filmmaking craft here that is at Beauty and the Beast level, or maybe even better. Mm. Mm. It feels very film like in the way that they have in the way that they've created it. I think they go for the visual storytelling in a, a massive, massive way in this one as well. I mean, one of the uh, one of the reasons that I adore this one so much is it's so beautiful. It looks absolutely amazing, and uh, with the inspiration that they've taken from uh, Chinese artwork, this incredibly uh, clean, simple stylized but not cartoonish way that they've presented uh, the the characters and the foreground um, what you know what's going on in the foreground but then the backgrounds it's almost like watercolor wash everything is incredibly hazy and it's all clouds and mountains and um, vast expanses of snow mm. and there's uh, a large amount of emptiness in the film with the characters being yes. dwarfed by the scenery mm. but I mean in 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 terms of what you were saying about setting a place I I mean, the scale is another thing. So many mountains, so many wide expanses of nothing. And the fact that they open with the Great Wall of China, which is one of the biggest constructions known to humankind, Mm. um, immediately just gives you this feeling of expanse, which, again, Dan, I agree completely. It connects with The Lion King incredibly well. Mm. Their colors are very muted and cool and very calming as well I, I really like the palette for this film in general I mean, there's the first 20 minutes of this film are probably my favorite part yeah on the whole uh, there's there's a bit of animation and wisdom that i heard thrown a lot working at pixar thrown around a lot when i was working at pixar and that was that you should be able to mute the audio and still be I able still to pick up so, most yeah. of what's going on in fact for the animator you should even be able to pause the film at any point and ideally the character poses and the blocking and characters posture and their expressions should communicate what the shot is mm. intended to say and i look at the first 20 minutes of this movie and well all <laughs> up of it, to the point the, where mushu turns out basically right, right, well and technically all the movie too but the first 20 minutes I feel like where it's at its strongest and I see so much of that elegant storytelling and so much information communicated visually and efficiently just like the way that Mulan is watching other girls on their way to the matchmaker and taking cues for how to carry herself and is always just a slight half step behind them and out of sync it's It's almost like they didn't want to um, go full Pocahontas with it and uh, they kind of they upped the Disney side of it and and made it a bit more kind of guiding you through with the funny funny over what would otherwise be a pretty um, this may have been what pissed off some of the feminists the idea that there is actually some really serious shit going on here regarding uh, a woman's place in that culture and they kind of gloss over it with a lot of cross-dressing gags which is in itself a way of pissing off a portion of the lgbt community there's that and also the fact that a lot of the other women are portrayed in a way which is um unexplored at best and um unsympathetic at worst mulan never meets another woman who also doesn't like her place Mm, yeah Carry or on, Dad, really sorry, even another woman that she's um, that she connects with. Yeah, yeah. At best, her grandmother is just is sort of at a doesn't care anymore. Yeah. Yes, age. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she's about to become an ancestor herself. Mm. True. This is what you give me to work with. Well, honey, I've seen worse. We're gonna turn this sow's ear 
into a silk purse. We'll have you washed and dried, trimmed and polished till you glow with pride. Trust my recipe for instant bride. You'll bring honor to us all. Wait and see when we're through. Boys will gladly go to war for you. With good fortune and a great hairdo. You'll bring honor to us There's some wonderful little uh, bits of storytelling about Mulan when uh, uh, during the uh, You'll Bring On Us To Us All song, which is a wonderful way to start it. Um, uh, she is both a strategist and a liberator. She um, passes a chess game. The, the, the Chinese version of chess looks very much like checkers and makes the winning move uh, just after um, examining the board for a moment. And then just, you know, there you go. She knows about battle and strategy straight off from the off. You don't need to then explain how she uh, can think like this later. Of course, these days she would still be accused of being a Mary Sue. And um, she liberates a doll that's been uh, held hostage by a boy and gives it back to a girl, which obviously then ties up to the doll later on. Very specifically, she seems to have uh, sympathies lying with defending the feminine side. 
There's also the fact that um, way even like right at the beginning when she has the chores to sort out, the lateral thinking that she demonstrates in tying the corn to the dog to mm. get the dog to go and feed the chickens, yeah. um, and the the thinking ahead, she brought an extra cup because she knew there was a chance she was going to break the first one, um, and, and then obviously you've got her concern for her father's health is is wound in there as well. All of her character traits are demonstrated by things she does rather than yeah. saying them saying out loud. To her, oh, yeah. Mulan, you're so beautiful. You're so graceful. You're so sweet. You know, she actually she does things. She demonstrates things. She acts. She, it, this is, I mean, one of the reasons that I I said uh, Meg is one of my favorite Disney heroines is because she acts. She makes decisions and she does things. And uh, Mulan is that amplified greatly it's all about her making choices and acting on those choices I feel like Chris Sanders must have designed that dog. I was about to say, Chris Sanders did design <laughs> the so dog. so sweet. There's so many little details of this that I just think, ah, Chris Sanders may have been something to do with that. The guy's a genius. Um, folks, Lilo and Stitch, How to Train Your Dragon, Chris Sanders all the way, just uh, Oh follow my God, his I said, the doll looks like Lilo. Mm-hmm. I thought you knew that when, no, when you were saying No, it, no, I had not. I just, it suddenly struck me that she really looks like Lilo, the design of the, the yeah. dress and the long black hair. The importance of bearing sons gets repeated uh, over and over again. Sharon, you were telling me something about the, how they recently repealed that one-child law in China. Um, it's it's not recent exactly. It's it's been softening gradually over um, many years. And I give know... us some uh, some background and why they actually clanged the law down in the first place. Okay, um, hang on a minute. I'm going to pull this up on Wikipedia because yeah, this isn't something it. that I want to speculate on. But it's, it's, it's important because there is actual, actually a, a modern-day cultural relevance to this film, which still ex- existed in 1998 and still exists now. And it existed, from the sounds of it, in uh, 632. And it's worth bearing in mind that um, China is hardly unique in this particular attitude. Oh, yeah. um, any culture that has been constructed around the idea of passing land on to the sons in the family and it, it, you know, being the role of the, uh, the sons to earn money, to look after the parents in their dotage. It's basically your sons are your pension um, in that kind of feudal system. Um, So to, to not have sons is potentially means you're going to die penniless and, and starving. But China is one of the only countries that have had to introduce a modern day law stipulating that. What's the actual law? What was it? Hang on, I'm just trying to convince my netbook to find Wikipedia. It's it's called the family uh, family planning policy. I think a lot of people, um, particularly outside China, refer to it as the one child policy, which isn't strictly accurate, but that's sort of the general guideline of it. Mm-hmm. It's called the family planning policy. The, in the West, it's generally referred to as the one child policy, and it was uh, brought in to try and control uh, a population boom in China. What year um, was it brought in? It was brought in in 1979. Okay. Um, they uh, demog- 
demographers estimate that the policy averted at least 200 million births between 1979 and 2009. Right. Until the 1960s, the government encouraged families to have as many children as possible because of Mao's belief that population growth empowered the country, preventing the emergence of family planning programs earlier in China's development. So they were aware that the population boom was potentially unsustainable a lot earlier than 1979, but they weren't able to bring anything in. Um, there was a jump from 540 million in 1949 to 940 million in 1976. Um, beginning in 1970, citizens were encouraged to marry at later ages and have only two children. A plan was prepared to reduce China's population to the desired level by 2080 with the one-child policy as one of the main instruments of social engineering um, and it was officially adopted in 1979. So it was only supposed to be for one generation. Uh, a couple were only supposed to have one child. However, the restrictions were somewhat looser in um, rural areas, uh, particularly if both parents were only children themselves. They could have two children and they wouldn't incur any penalties. Um, however, the... This the all ties in that, specifically regarding yeah. the fact that female children were less desirable than males. Well, the, the wording that struck me was that um, as part of the relaxed um, restrictions, uh, families in most areas are allowed to apply to have a second child if their firstborn is a daughter or suffers from physical disability, mental illness, or intellectual disability. So having a female set of chromosomes is on a par with being considered defective in some way. And it just seemed odd to me that if your purpose is population control, why would you permit the birth of a daughter to be followed by another birth, which could potentially be another daughter, which is then more children who are potentially then going to grow up and, and have children themselves. And this is their wording, not ours. We are in no way standing in judgment of anybody born imperfectly. But what has uh, it resulted in in terms of uh, gender distribution? Okay, the sex ratio at birth between male and female in mainland China reached 117 to 100 and remained steady between 2000 and 2013. This is substantially higher than the natural baseline, which ranges between 103 to 100 and 107 to 100. Um, that tends to balance out because, as I understand it, the mortality rate in male infants is higher than in female infants. According to a report by the National Population and Family Planning Commission, there will be 30 million more men than women in 2020, potentially leading to social instability and courtship-motivated emigration. Um, the disparity in the sex ratio increases dramatically after the first birth. Uh, the large majority of couples appear to accept the outcome of the first pregnancy, whether it's a boy or a girl. If the first child is a girl and they are able to have a second child, then a couple may take extraordinary steps to assure that the second child is a boy. If a couple already has two or more boys, the sex ratio of higher parity birth swings decidedly in a feminine direction. So, I mean, these things do seem to be balancing out now, maybe. Uh, they're working towards that. But it, it's, I think it's just an example of this idea that boy children are more highly prized, particularly when you're looking at older uh, cultural attitudes. And there are a multitude of reasons for that. 
the essence of what they're trying to look at with Mulan is not so much which gender is better or which gender is more desirable, but very, very restrictive roles and options that are available to the different genders. Um, the men I mean, by bearing arms, the girls by bearing exactly. sons. Exactly. And this this is one of the things that um, I meant when I was talking about there is actually um, more of an idea of balance in this than I think a lot of people have um, honed in on. It's not to me anyway, it's not really saying that the only way that Mulan can find acceptance is by pretending to be a boy. It's, it does, it's not really saying that at all to me. It's that the very specifically prescribed outline of what a girl should be and the option that a girl has to, uh, to bring honour and respect to her family. Because that's a really key thing for Mulan and for her character. Um, she's still... Uh, the dutiful daughter. She's still got that stereotypical ideal of honouring her father and, and greatly respecting him and wanting to do the right thing by him, not just for his personal health and, and personal benefit, but to to bring him respect and to not detract from the honour that he is, is looked upon by everybody else. And one of the things that they mentioned in the commentary was um, that when Mulan has her I Want song, which is um, Reflection, they were saying that she seems to want two things. She wants to be able to be herself, but she also wants to bring honour to her father. And that, to me is missing the point if you think that those are two things, two separate things. She wants being herself to bring honour to her father. And she wants to be able to bring honour to her father by being herself. It's all tied up with the, in, in the same thing. The outlined method by which she can do that because she's a girl doesn't work for her. She slips over. She's not graceful. She, you know, she can't keep quiet. She has a tendency to shout out about things. She's clever. She's, as you say, she's a strategist. But none of those things to me are specifically masculine or specifically feminine they are simply tools with which any person can find the way of, of fulfilling their potential and, and doing what works in their life and when she moves into the masculine world of the battlefield when you get to the song i'll make a man out of you that's a very restrictive portrayal of, of what you have to be to bring honour as well. The idea that you have to be mysterious and strong and silent. And I've, I've found myself feeling really sorry for the guys who've got to live up to this template. And even um, even Sheng, who is supposed to be sort of this, this epitome of masculine ideal, he's drowning. I, I actually would have liked to... I know they, they said they steered clear a little bit of following his story too closely, but I would have like to see a little bit more of that the idea that having all of this responsibility suddenly thrust upon him he is actually a bit out of his depth that he doesn't really not that he doesn't have what it takes but that there are maybe elements to him that would be better applied not in this sort of very uh outlined rigid a man is this and nothing else and a woman is this and nothing else and i think what appeals to me so much about mulan is that she is trying to find her middle ground she is taking uh, some from one and some from the other and and it in a very very subtle way because it's it's not something that they they really go into in any great depth but this idea that that um gender and gender roles are not 
non-binary, that it's not a case of if you are a girl, A, and if you are a boy, B, that it's a, it's um, a spectrum and you take from the different points on the spectrum that suit you as a person. Look at me, I will never pass for a perfect bride or a perfect daughter. Can it be? I'm not meant to play this part. Now I see that if I were truly to be myself, I would break my family's heart. Who is that girl I see staring straight? Panels in this that could have been stolen from Akami. Yeah, yeah. Or were, Which that were looks, inspiring. To or were inspiring to Akami. Particularly anything where you see smoke mm. or water. Yeah. And I was half expecting a paintbrush to come in from the side and look as though it was <laughs> literally <laughs> painting the story as we were going along. I guess Wind Waker as well sort of falls into that uh, mm, category. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I love that Disney does allow the art style that they're trying to pull from inform their effects animation even more than their character designs mm. a lot of the time. Like, the character designs will be modified somewhat. You can tell that, that Belle and Mulan are done in a different style, as are the rest of the characters in yeah. each of those films. But the effects, you may not notice it at first, but from film to film, they actually look quite different. Yeah. And, and particularly beautiful in this film. If you folks haven't yet got it on Blu-ray, that is one that it genuinely uh, benefits from being in HD with. Uh, I, I cannot recommend the Blu-ray enough. It's um, it, it's exceptional. Um, my absolute favorite sequence, and I'd imagine a lot of people's absolute favorite sequence. Anybody? The scene where she um, goes to take the armor. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean just the, the combination of music and determination and uh, the the way that both light and shadow play out throughout that whole scene and its aftermath and uh, the the confluence of events and the decisions obviously made without a word being spoken and 
the drama of that scene, and at the same time, it feel it it, it, it takes on kind of Lion King levels of epic, if you know what I mean. I think what contributes to it for me is there's um, a frame at the end of um, sort of as it as it moves from reflection into that sequence mm. where um, and if if I ever get the opportunity to have this frame um, actually on the wall, I will take it oh, okay. uh, is where um, she's sitting at the base of the ancestor statue. And she's got her feet up and her hair's all fallen around her. And it almost looks like she's asking her ancestor to embrace her as a small child. Almost to say, yes, you are part of our family. Whatever you choose to do at this point is the right thing and we will be behind you and we will support you. And that, again, for me, kind of underlines this idea that she's not she's not trying to reject anything. She's not trying to kick out against her culture and say, this is all wrong and it doesn't fit me and I need to run away and do my own thing. Um, and I'm really glad that they moved away from that idea for her character because, not because I think it necessarily would have made her less sympathetic, but I just think this version is much more complex um, and and makes her course of action the more um, heartbreaking because she is going against things that she does kind of believe in and support because she's just trying to find her own path um, but that moment um, and that single frame just for me sums up the uh, that that feeling of being torn into, of of trying to make a decision, and wanting to believe that what you feel is the right thing to do, is going to be the right thing in other people's eyes, and knowing deep down that it's not. That sequence is, like I was saying before, this first twenty minutes just very, very well directed, really great shot choices, and it just communicates so much with with no words, just just visually it communicates a great deal by where they choose to put the camera what specific actions they choose to show it's very, it's a wonderful little minute of animation Mushu actually <laughs> before we get to Mushu uh, the ancestors uh, led by George Takai which um, I, I, the last time I saw this I hadn't really gotten as into Star Trek as I am now so hearing his voice is incredibly gratifying he's, he's got this wonderful rich resonance to him I actually found the ancestors to be somewhat off-putting. This is where the bulk of, of the uh, uh, cross-dresser jokes get uh, flung in there, and they kind of like stick with Mushu as well. It's almost like they're trying to sidestep the seriousness of what's actually going on, because they probably don't want to upset too many people or be too uh, dramatic about it. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to uh, um, just uh, bring out my own assumptions on this one. But it seems like this was the time that if they played it a little more seriously, then maybe the uh, the gravity of the situation would have been carried across. Instead, they go for the funny funny. And it would be very, very hard to go for the serious and have Eddie Murphy mugging like crazy. I think you're right. It, it does feel like maybe a somewhat necessary pendulum swing, but way too far in the opposite direction immediately after that great yeah. little yeah. sequence because it does kind of undercut the drama a little bit of what just happened. Yeah. I think it's just a little bit too jarring. And looking at the film, I'm really surprised Mushu doesn't annoy me necessarily. Because mm. I feel like he should. He should, I, yeah, on paper. <laughs> if you just wrote down his lines, you'd be like, this guy has got to go. 
Like I think I think he actually ends up functioning pretty great as a comic sidekick without crossing the line into annoying territory. But I do wonder if it might have been better if he they hadn't cast Eddie Murphy, because when you cast Eddie Murphy, you are going to get Eddie Murphy, and Ernie, and Eddie Murphy is all anybody is going to hear. But when you look like at other side characters like Sebastian, say, or Lumiere or Cogsworth, mm. they don't have a stunt cast celebrity behind them. And I think there's a lasting, like, I think there's a lasting value to that, to letting the character be their own character with their own voice and their own charm and appeal that you'll remember them for and not just as an avatar for whatever famous person is behind the mic. Because Mushu and Donkey might as well be the same. They're the same character because they're both Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And they don't get to really stand on their own. They are just Eddie Murphy as Dragon. Eddie Murphy <laughs> as Donkey. All right, that's it. Dishonor. Dishonor on your whole family. Make a note of this. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. You're so wrapped up in layers, Onion Boy. You're afraid of your own feelings. Go away. See? There you are, doing it again, just like you did to Fiona. And all she ever do was like you. Maybe even love you. Yes. And, and they lose a little something there. Possibly why in Shrek they didn't even bother giving me a name. He's just Donkey. But yeah, but despite that, I'm surprised he actually doesn't annoy me. That I, I think he does work. I think it's just a slight. He could have been just a little bit better. Get ready, Milan, your 17 salvation is at hand. For I have been sent by your ancestors to guide you through your masquerade. Come on, if you're gonna stay, you're gonna work. So heed my word, because if the army finds out you're a girl, the penalty is death. Who are you? Who am I? Who am I? I am the guardian of lost souls. I am the powerful, the pleasurable, the indestructible Mushu. Shan Yu, I think, again, on paper, this guy should be one of the scariest Disney villains ever. Shan Yu. Nice work, gentlemen. You found the Hun army. The Emperor will stop you. Stop me? He invited me. By building his wall, he challenged my strength. Well, I'm here to play his game. Go! Tell your emperor to send his strongest armies. I'm ready. Possibly he's missing one scene where he gets to really talk about himself or, or gets to re- we get to really get, see inside uh, who he is. Um, he, he seems to be summed up by the fact that he's like, the little girl will be wanting her doll back. And it's like, oh my God, he is absolutely fine with seeking out and killing children. Yeah. They may have gone a bit overboard on this guy. There, he there is aren't the many most shades of evil, for him, black-hearted guy in the world. It doesn't get more evil than that. None, none more black. Mm. He is very basic as a villain, and he's very simple, but I think he's effective for the function he has to play in this particular story because he's not necessarily the antagonist that Mulan has to deal with. Like the story isn't about Mulan dealing with facing off against Shan Yu. It's about her story. Her story is about taking the big risk, joining the army, finding herself struggling to keep that secret. That's where a lot of the drama in the story comes from. Sean Yu is just there to function as the big threat that is setting everything in motion. And 
creating the need for her to take a lot of the actions that she does and as a way to lend urgency to a lot of things. And I think he is great for that because he is very much the sinister, big, scary threat coming mm. that fears nothing. And just a, he's the big wave that's about to crash over this whole place that uh, Shang's little tiny army, which seems smaller in every shot and every as the film goes on till till eventually it's just that cluster of about eight people. Yeah. Seems woefully inadequate to to stop. And then there's uh, uh, Yao, played by Harvey Firestein, uh, Ling and Chen Po. The uh, was it is it the group of three, the Warriors Three? I think yeah, they do call them the Gang of Three or something like yeah, that. Yeah, uh, they? repeatedly. They um, they are defined by their shapes, as in Chen Po is a great big, huge, round panda type guy. Uh, Yao is a, an angry little square, and Ling is described as a triangle, though he seems more like a rod to me. Uh, it's, he's a very narrow triangle. Yeah, he's a very, very thin, ashashili triangle. They're there to suggest these are the men who have, as, as you said, with the I'll make a man out of you, these are the guys who have the, uh, this is what it requires of you to be a man, thrust upon them, and they want to meet that goal. And it's really, it's their acceptance of Mulan at the end of the film that's absolutely key. Uh, and they accept her for, for who she is and... It's kind of like the the the, the rest of the, the world sort of accepting Mulan is incidental because it's these the the group of three the manly men need to basically take her as one of their own and all kind of agree that they're fighting in the same fight. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also, I think yeah. the fact that there um, there are elements to uh, their character that um, kind of resists that manly men image I mean Yao is the one who seems to embrace it most fully but he's clearly got short guy syndrome Yeah, Chin Po has some very strongly uh, feminine elements to him um, I, his his whole thing about he, he just wants a, a woman who can cook for him I seriously doubt this guy's going to get out of the army without actually learning to cook for himself yeah Again, in a subtle way, it brings in this idea that there are skills and elements that might be considered feminine or might be considered masculine that you can't necessarily not draw on just because people don't perceive you as falling into that camp. The song A Girl Worth Fighting For, all of the qualities they list in a woman that they're after, none of them are qualities that um, Mulan possesses. She's not the housewife. She's not She's not going to admire them for their gristly, muscular bodies. Also, notably, all the qualities they list seem like things that people who hadn't really had much to do with women would come up with. Because <laughs> <laughs> if, if what you're looking for in a woman is somebody who's going to go, go, go all goo-goo-eyed when you um, talk about your great exploits, you've not hung out with women very much. <laughs> My girl will marvel at my strength, adore my battle scars. Yeah. I, I, Harvey Feierstein should have been in more Disney films, and more animated films in general. He's got one of the most incredibly distinctive voices out there. He does, yeah. Wasn't he the, um, he was in that Simpsons episode. I'm a Simpson. Where... I'm Carl. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Herd, we feel a lot like cattle. 
love instead A girl worth fighting for Huh? That's what I said A girl worth fighting for I want a paler than the moon With eyes that shine like stars My girl will marvel at my strength Adore my battle scars I couldn't care less what she'll wear Or what she looks like It all depends on what she cooks like Beef, pork, chicken At the local girl's store you are quite the chopper Such a lady killer. <laughs> I'm a girl back home who's unlike any other. Yeah, the only girl who'd love him is his mother. Jesus, we're already at uh, the Tung Shao Pass. Um, There's a really, really impressive sequence as well. Yeah. Again, very well directed and a great technical feat as well. Yeah. It is, we've mentioned this before in the movie Clichés episode. Uh, it is absolutely a cliche to go to a, a scene of a massacre and there's just a little doll there in the street uh, to indicate that children died here. But it's a Disney film. You have to show that the stakes are incredibly high without absolutely terrifying children. And at the same time, making a very, uh, putting a volum- very solemn point across. And the doll also gets a lot more, has a lot more purpose as well. Like, yeah. Yeah, the child's doll trope is definitely a shortcut type thing that you'll see in a lot of movies that want to very quickly and bloodlessly imply yeah. that civilians and innocents were killed here. But I mean, this is, again, this is the kind of like elegant storytelling and communication this film often does. The doll has a lot of other is functions in a lot of other handy ways in the story like the yeah. villain uses it to gather a ton of scouting information and to formulate a plan which lets us know that he that what he's planning and how he plans to do it it shows us he's a great I mean, it shows us he's a great strategist he's got a good head on his shoulders and it reinforces his status as a threatening just force a uh, dangerous force mm-hmm. coming at uh, coming at our heroes and the point where Mulan finds it is basically where her story and Sean Yu's path are finally crossing because they've been kind of two A B stories up until this point, but uh, it's a great visual cue that sort of shows the storytelling geography a little bit and serves a lot of useful functions. That's the kind of elegance I like seeing. Tropes aren't inherently bad; they're bad when they're lazy. It, it also resonates very heavily with Mulan because this little girl will be forgotten unless she uh, she feels like. Um... The general gets his uh, uh, sword and helmet um, memorial and she puts the doll very purposefully down there because it, it seems like Mulan has appointed herself as somebody who will 
stand up for, in this case, avenge the weak and forgotten. And the fact that a child, uh, a female child, is the most vulnerable uh, and um, easy to ignore, sideline, marginalize, and if needs be, kill, that's the life she's going to be avenging. That's the person she's going to be coming after Shan Yu for. Although it's not really done in an angry way, just in a very resolute way. It also emphasizes the reasons that she has sought battle in the first place. Because, as you said at the beginning, it's about her uh, taking a protector and a defender role. She's not there to seek um, glory and fame. She's there to... Effectively, what took her out the door in the first place was to protect her father. And now she's expanding that protectiveness to other people. So that's how we're going to win this... Not destroying what we hate, but saving what we love. This next beat really knocked me for six uh, because I was actually examining the 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 number of seconds it took to go from a uh, a scene of uh, a, a song of great fun and silliness and levity, then suddenly to a, a scene of desolation. And there was actually a. Um, uh, a choice of three different levels of battlefield that uh, Disney uh, came up with here, the the animators they had one where it was they were trying to keep the bodies to an absolute minimum just so they wouldn't upset anyone and it wasn't exactly clear what had happened aside from devastation and the one at the uh, upper end of the scale was a grisly massacre and um, the execs went for the one in the middle where they showed that men soldiers had died so that it went beyond the burned out village and an entire army had been taken out and then a few beats go by while they mourn the dead, and then we're almost immediately in a big action sequence. But they manage it perfectly on the way down and across the pass. There's a little gag. A firework goes flying out of the wagon, and Mushu points at the cricket in a kind of, it wasn't me, way. Of course it was him. He's on fire all the time. But it's just that one little moment between... You need that little laugh. And it's not forced down your throat. It's not the stupid um, gags that the ancestors come up with. It's just a little bit of quiet humour. And then suddenly you're in the action. It's extremely well managed. Just that couple of minutes. If you look at how many different emotions they're trying to get out of the audience. And when I say different, I mean like one series of emotions. Then a completely different series of emotions. Then a laugh. Then another series of emotions. That whole thing takes place over like two minutes. It is impressive and a really yeah. good misdirect as well because we've just come off the somber scene and then it's very, very quiet. Yeah. Just their stillness as they walk. And then a gag bit, which is then suddenly interrupted by the like the arrow that like swoops in out of nowhere. And yeah. then you're suddenly in the attack and caught by surprise. But yeah, it, ma- it manages the tone very carefully and very well. Especially considering the tone problems of Hercules, Hunchback, and Pocahontas. They're kind of back on track now in Lion King territory. And there is a, a great skill in terms of, uh, of film creation where you are managing the audience's emotions rather than manipulating them. The Mongolian army, basically the horde that appear over this ledge and come barreling down this hill, yeah. is still really oppressive. Yeah, even Actually. after Lord of the Rings and all kinds of films have elapsed in, in, in between times with you know thousands of CG horses. Yeah, they've managed their limited 3D capabilities, even at the time, very well. To even, even now, you don't feel the... It doesn't feel dated. It still looks good, and it still looks... It still gets the point across, too, just the scale of this massive force coming down this hill. Mm. 
that just feels completely unstoppable. I think they have just the right amount of uh, 2D stuff for you to look at in the foreground so that the background is there and happening and moving, but you're not focusing on it and going, hang on, that's all CG. Right. And again, the uh, the strategy comes through as uh, Mulan's, uh, Mulan's victory over the Huns is not done by accident. It's not just luck. She observes her surroundings with about a second worth to act with what she has. And she actually goes to a- retrieve a tool to achieve her aims. And it's a straight out, um, complete turning of the tide, literally, on uh, uh, her enemies. But it's done in a way that doesn't leave you punching the air in a kind of, yeah, but in a kind of uh, a somber, this is how uh, a battle plays out way. It's it's not done in a kind of... Um, Hail the Conquering Hero star. I mean, it's just in how it's resolved in that um, as she comes out of it, she doubles over in pain and immediately um, you're, you're fearing for her life. And this is, of course, after the ridiculous breach of physics that is a horse and two fully grown adults dangling off a, an arrow with a piece of string around it held by Harvey Firestein. One other thing about that uh, moment where she fires the rocket as well, and this is duplicated later on when she goes up against um, Shen Yu on the roof, is she can't kill. She cannot directly attack. That would be too much of a breach of who she is. Mm -hmm. She has not fully embraced the warrior so much that she can look a man in the eye and then shoot a rocket directly into his chest. Even though, I mean, you could argue that it's a strategic decision because um, even if she took out Shen Yu, she's still got the rest of the the Hun army bearing down on her. I think in all fairness, you take that guy out, an awful lot of those people are going to go, what are we in this for again? And turn around and go the other way. But by making that decision to fire on the mountain instead, it takes away the need to directly murder a human being, which again, on the roof, when she gets the sword and she plays that whole um, thing where she basically uses the sword as like a spring vault to jump over him and then stick his cloak to the... She could have just stabbed him at that point. Yeah. But it's obviously not in her to do so. Uh, it can't before the horse. It's Disney. They're not going to get her. have her getting Shiv happy. But... Um... Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> Now stand back, I gotta practice my stabbing. Ha <laughs> ha! No, please, help, stop it! The actual discovery of Mulan, uh, when uh, it, it, it comes out, this is something that absolutely had to happen. It, 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 it couldn't happen at the end in a kind of what moment. It really shouldn't happen in a comedy moment. And it shouldn't happen in a kind of, and I just saw her Norks moment either. They're actually, again, extremely measured in how they do that. The um, the the mountain doctor whispering to uh, uh, Li Shang, and then um, that single moment of uh, vulnerability on her part when she's sort of ah, Li Shang, oh no. I mean, Lyra has seen this film several times before, but uh, when he goes for his sword to uh, to, to strike her down as the law di- di- dictates, she gasped. They they sell the drama of that scene uh, and what's weighing heavily on everybody involved. One man from every family must serve in the Imperial Army. The Xiao family. The Yi family. 
I will serve the Emperor in my father's place. The Far Family! No! This is not that scene, but it is the setup for that scene. I am ready to serve the Emperor. Father, you can't go! Mulan! Please, sir. My father has already fought for- Silence! You would do well to teach your daughter to hold her tongue in a man's presence. Mulan, you dishonor me. James Hong there as Chief Fu, the government official. James Hong was, of course, Lo Pan in Big Trouble in Little China, and Poe's father in Kung Fu Panda. Striking the balance between making the laws seem ridiculous and comedic and at the same time kind of pedantic and threatening. But also someone that you can't completely hate. Yeah. Uh, he, he plays a lot of characters that are this sort. Yeah. But all, he plays kind of a range of this sort of character to a really lovable type character, but he's never fully in one direction. You still kind of love him. He has, um, it's almost a throwaway line, actually, and I've never picked it up before this this time of watching it through. Um, when he's talking to uh, Li Shang about his promotion, and he just drops this really acidic comment about in there about, and I got my role, or I got my position all on my own. Mm, as in he, not just because I was, my, you know, my father's son. Yeah, I didn't get it handed to me by daddy. You can just see this resentment. Well, I mean, think about it. He does not meet the criteria for what makes a man, does he? He's he, uh, obviously very literate. Um, he's the pen and paper man. He's the scribe. He's not the warrior. And I think that probably eats at him a lot more than he lets on. Mm. And his reward is to be fired at the end. Well, not nearly. Not quite, because Milan says she doesn't want the job. But basically, he's still fired for it. That's his reward. He gets tossed aside and they're kind of, we don't like your stupid rules. He's the arbiter. He takes a certain kind of personal pride in delivering these rules and laws and he would quite happily have stood by while uh, Mulan was uh, executed in front of him. I don't think happily. He would have done so in pursuit of the law. But he's effectively ensuring the rules get followed to the letter. Last I checked, that's not a sackable offence. He's classic middle management. I think the Emperor could have made his point, which is, these are stupid rules, by saying, Mulan, you can be his new boss. But this is a long, well-worn tradition in movies of break the rules and get rewarded, follow the rules and get punished. We like that trope because we like to imagine ourselves breaking more rules. And then for everyone to see how right we were. Cut to the uh, scene of the Forbidden City. Astonishing crowd scene here. It's possibly less so now that we've seen the lantern section in um, Tangled. But if you consider how many little um, people had to be animated in a way that convinced and wasn't just... I mean, I remember looking in the background in uh, Hunchback at the people doing their, their, their uh, Ring Around the Roses dancing and going, oof, like that. You don't get that in this. They're all too far away. But you are given the impression of a crowd, most definitely. They used a different technique this time where they weren't a whole bunch of 3D characters rendered. They were all a bunch of 2D drawings, maybe like 8 to 10 characters. All right. Basically copy-pasted, like pasted on a... Uh, just a 2D plane, like kind of old fake 3D assets in like an N64 game or something. Sprites, basically. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, just replicated uh, in mass. And they did that for a lot of their crowd scenes, e even in the uh, 
in the army sections and stuff like that. And it is quite effective, actually. Mm. Like it, you don't notice the uh, repetition there. They've desynced a lot of the animation on a lot of those characters, but uh, it was a really good way to get a large crowd effectively that still looked 2D like the rest of the world and the characters, but didn't look wrong the instance you actually focused on one. So yeah, good for them. I'm sure it wouldn't have worked for uh, for Hunchback because that camera views are much much closer yeah, you need to a lot of the characters and they're and they're very yeah. raucous and you need to be seeing them from a lot of different angles so it probably wouldn't have worked for them but for this shot where it's just lots of just a huge distant crowd in an enormous space i think it's a pretty good efficient way to work when mulan actually employs her uh, tactics in in well the 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 huns bring their trap dive into the palace um seemingly that their ultimate plan appears to be to execute the emperor in front of his people and thus destabilize the chinese government mulan uses what she's learned along the way and she, as you said earlier, Sharon, she gets by on her own merits, and she actually is able to use who she would have, what she would have done all along, had she been given the opportunity and the chance. And technically, it's the um, it's it's the conundrum of how to get up the extremely high um, pole post to get to the arrow, which she solved using her own brain earlier. But that was kind of regardless of uh, gender at that stage, and um, the uh, men. The, the, the Warriors 3 going in uh, dis- uh, disguise as females, they appear to have learned from Mulan. Mm, same trick. In fact, can you think of somebody else in a different movie who uses a similar cerebral approach to get something down off a flagpole? Captain America. Indeedy. The scene which he clashes with and eventually takes down Shan Yu, he underestimates her repeatedly and straight out ignores her and goes after Li Shang repeatedly. To the point where he doesn't even... She has to, like, stand in front of him and pull up her hair to say, Look, it's me, to actually get him to notice her. They were adamant that it was, that Shan Yu was not going to die just by falling to his death, as every other uh, Disney villain tends to do. So uh, what she actually ends up employing is that uh, um, he underestimates her fan... Then she uses the uh, the Pelloin sword in a skillful manner and is helped by her friends. And there's that balance between the male-female thing that we seem to respond so well to going on. To take him out and using one of the uh, 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 more well-known Chinese inventions of fireworks. I do really like the touch of her using a fan mm. to get the upper hand on a, the leader of these this warrior army with a huge, really dangerous-looking sword using about the least warlike device you can think of to ultimately get the upper hand. At the very end, I think it kind of annoyed me that she ended up going back to her family because she gets offered a place uh, in the Imperial uh, military and could have genuinely had a major positive effect for the equality of her society. She could have sent Chinese culture forward several hundred years. But of course, she was just a legend, and and and, and you know, it's a story. It's also, I would say, it takes more than one person in the right place to change societal attitudes, because ultimately, uh, one woman in a position of power doesn't prove to people that women can take positions of power. It just proves that that woman can take a position of power. Sure. You have to reach a, a, a tipping point in terms of numbers before it becomes a given, I think. And ultimately her goal was to keep her father protected and to uh, do as best she could by him 
to protect China, and she had achieved that. So it was a case of having that been achieved, she could return home with pride. Yeah, and, and yet aim... she's still so humble when she comes back to him. Yeah, her aim was to find um, her true place and her true self, and being the emperor's advisor uh, or uh, you know a, a noble warrior on the battlefield for the rest of her life. That wasn't her either. She was just looking to. Um, to be true to herself and, and the, the place that she felt she could do that best was obviously back at home. Yeah, and She had reached more or less the end of this story. Staying on as an advisor to the Emperor would have actually been really interesting, I agree, I, but it kind of starts a new story, I, which is a new story that I would actually enjoy watching as well. Didn't it? Wasn't there a Mulan 2 anyway? There was a Mulan 2. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened it. in it. <laughs> yeah, kind of don't want to know. I could look it up. Let's find out, folks. Uh, all right, here we go. A month after the event of the first film, General Shang asks Mulan for her hand in marriage, and she happily accepts. Hearing about their engagement, Mushi is thrilled for them until the leader of their. We haven't talked about how funny Eddie Murphy is in this whole thing. We've just sure. said he's not annoying, but he is genuinely funny. This is, is one of his finest, funniest performances ever. He was doing some terrible films around this time, like Holy Man <laughs> and The Adventures of Pluto Nash. He's not exactly reined in for this, but they hone and find a home for his energy in a way that uh, then neatly translates towards uh, his taking the role of Donkey. Yeah, he just feels a bit more focused. Yeah. I love how when he, he first meets her, he's basically playing his uh, you know evangelist role and uh, doing the shadow puppetry thing. It's the right use of an animal companion. He's also proactive. He affects the story. If you lifted Mushu out then Mulan herself would need a lot more resource. Her character would have to be different to get her up in the morning. Yeah, he gives her a lot of pep talks and guidance along the way, where she she would, as soon as she entered that army camp, she would have become very unsure and lacked a lot of confidence to act that she could actually get this done, and he provides a lot of of those uh, motivational words. Yeah, he lights a fire under her. There you go. Father, I brought you the sword of Shan Yu and the crest of the Emperor. They're gifts to honor the Fa family. The greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. I've missed you so. I've missed you too, Baba. absolutely wonderful moment it's a kind of a triumphant ending it's just it ends as it began the film and it's it's got that kind of a, the 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 biggest upswell of emotion happened in that garden and then it it concludes there where it, where it should and that's it's a wonderful close and then there's a dance disco ending with a disco gag and the pulp fiction like fingers waving over the eyes thing and that's rubbish what did Lara say? She leaned over and whispered to me, he's like my daddy. Oh, That is the greatest honour. But what does Stevie Wonder have to do with China? <laughs> or 98 Degrees, for that matter. Yeah, 98... I mean, Stevie Wonder, great. 98 Degrees didn't even need to be there. They did not. No. <laughs> I don't even know who they are. Didn't you think it was NSYNC? I thought it was NSYNC. Turns out... They, I- were, they were a boy band that popped up 
shortly after NSYNC and Backstreet Boys were kind of were kind of starting to already like we're already starting to flag a little bit. And then 98 Degrees popped in with like one song and then disappeared forever. Mm. This wasn't even the song. I think they they kind of had to end at a party and some jubilation. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Labyrinth. You know how it's like uh, you know you get a lovely kind of poignant ending and then it's like let's just all have a party. I, I can see why they would energy wise not want to go right from this like lovely little ending and Recon- reconciliation and greatest honors having you as a daughter and then going right to yeah the cover version of reflection the actual songs in the film are great i like stevie wonder but i'm not massively keen on uh, a true to your heart it's a ridiculous oversimplification of the scenario they're um, um, singing about but yeah i don't even count that really as one of the songs in the film it feels like it feels like one of the pop covers that they would usually put in these end credits except they did forgot to actually include the song in the film so you know what I don't think it would have been too bad if they just Title card, beautiful bright red lettering. And then, I don't know, maybe a reprise of You'll Bring Honor to Us All. Only different, changed. It could be like a re completely new lyrics reflecting a different place. Yeah. Brought Honor to Us All. Yeah. But in a completely different way, reflecting how what Mulan actually did. It could be. Uh, originally, Eddie Murphy was going to sing a song as well. Boy. He started against it. I wonder why. <laughs> it was a bad song. I've seen the deleted scene with it in it. It's bad. Oh, really? Oh, okay. mm. It's got a lot more cross-dressing jokes in it. Oh, well. Yeah, we could do with a few less of them. I, I would be interested in hearing from our... Um, we've got a small contingent of um, trans listeners. I don't think it's fair to say that across the board this will be insulting to the trans community or embraced by the trans community. I think it's going to be a case of down to the individual on this one. I, I would be inclined so. to agree. I mean, it's it's not really... About um, sexual gender d- identity anyway. It's about exactly, so, social... Yeah. And, it's and, it's uh, the gender role in society. Um, but She you, has no desire to be a man. She just has to facilitate um, what she needs to do by pretending to be a man. Yeah. I mean, I have to admit, though, I have always um, felt that the uh, there's an element of... Um, uh, a female coming out in reflection. Oh yeah, that's that's gonna score very very highly with a lot of people for whom it just jabs at their heart and they're like, my God, this song is about me. Mm. And because it's so applicable, in the same way that Let It Go is so applicable to so many scenarios. But that's the best kind of representative story, isn't it? It's not something that you can tick the boxes and say, yes, this exactly uh, recreates a particular experience. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's one that elements of which can be taken uh, to, to represent um, a lot of difficulties and dilemmas that people come across in their lives. And you can guarantee none of those songs will ever be sung by 98 Degrees. Oh, God. Thank <laughs> Christ for that. <laughs> Oi. So this but, one earned more than Hunchback and Hercules. It did. Not by much. I think and, it got a, a more respect, and that's possibly why Disney um, r- r- think of it more fondly than uh, the, the other latter-end 90s stuff. 
I think it did. I, I remember feeling like it did at the time. I mean, I, I think A Bug's Life performed better that year, and that trend wasn't going to stop anytime soon. So yeah. you can yeah. you can see where this is going. Yeah. Also, it's entirely possible that the reason that there's so much uh, material in terms of how much effort they put in on the design and the specifics of the, the Chinese art that they were trying to imitate and all that kind of thing is because they really put a lot of thought into this one. They might just not have put that much thought into Hercules. <laughs> I, I don't I don't buy it. I'm willing to believe... <laughs> like. So much thought goes into all of these things. Like, yeah, yeah. And when it's I a shame that it doesn't. Much thought. I just except mean, Chicken oh. Little. Well, <laughs> <laughs> bad thought can happen too. So much thought goes into all of these things, and it is a shame that it that love degree of thought is not revealed in the bonus materials of so many of these films. Honestly, because there's a lot of people who work very and think very hard making a lot of these things, even the ones that turn out bad, and sometimes getting a look into their process can still be really interesting, even in the bad cases. So I do wish Disney would cast more of a light on those ones they don't seem as fond of themselves. Yeah, I, I want to know more about Black Cauldron and Rescuers Down Under. And uh, I mean, Oliver and Company did well enough, but no one ever said anything about it. I want to see a Black Cauldron's A Heart of Darkness documentary, basically. Just like that, and then we got to the moment where uh, we tried to pitch them the melting, rotting corpses of the undead army, and Jeffrey said no. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from anything else, it would be such um, a, an incredible educational experience if Disney were able to produce learning material for all of their films yeah. uh, for, for people to study. I mean, I. That's I, why we're doing these podcasts. The whole. Um, all the material that was put together for the making of the Lord of the Rings films you can watch that as basically a masterclass in how to put a film together yeah very true and I mean it I know it's not officially sanctioned or anything but what is the what is that emperor's new groove uh, the the sweat box yes that that it only reveals kind of a few specific angles of it just because it's like kind of more sting focused and produced but it In gives the quiet you such time of evening. Sorry, but, but but that film gives you such a look—a film that is not coming together well. At looking at the Disney Studio with like the company that makes all of these great things, what does it look like when they're making something that is not coming together? And like, what does it, what does it look like before the big triumph when the film actually comes out and is good? It, it's so much more interesting actually seeing a problematic production are seeing them when they are failing and you can learn so much about the whole process and you can learn to really appreciate when they capture lightning in a bottle and succeed in a grand way just by seeing it gives you an idea of how hard it is to do this like animation making an animated film is such a huge difficult task that involves so many people and when you have any production that involves that many people it that means that it requires a lot of things to go right for it to come together in a great singular beautiful way and that they do it at all is astounding and i think getting to see these sort of windows in to failing projects helps you to really realize that if you've not been on the inside of it yourself yeah but like I said, that's kind of why we're do I'm doing these podcasts, because I wanted to do a series that looked at Disney and just didn't pull its punches. But one that, that did it with absolute love at the core, 
but uh, a realism and an understanding of human frailties and how that can actually make for some fascinating almost happened stories and some some stories of, of things that actually you know how this came about yeah I mean, this actually makes me really look forward to talking about this these post tarzan films that do start kind of doing all kinds of different weird things yeah. to varying degrees of success because i think that's gonna actually those are gonna be very interesting to look into further and discuss what they're trying to do up until this point the whole renaissance has been much of films doing a very similar thing very well which is always which is really interesting to watch and great fun to talk about but uh seeing these as we get toward like dinosaur and emperor's new groove and atlantis and lilo and treasure planet like that's lots of films doing very different things in interesting ways and sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing horribly we shall see if the current renaissance results in the former or the latter indeed we shall (laughs) Okay, so next week we'll be back with Tarzan, one of my absolute favourites. Can't wait. And a huge shout-out to all of our special patrons this month. That's Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Christopher Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And if you folks feel like joining the Patreon, you can get access to all kinds of goodies. If you're at the $3 level, you get every episode two days early. If you're at the $5 level, you get quick reviews, and you can hear everything that went on behind the scenes during the podcast, the stuff that didn't make the final cut in our cutting class episodes. Quick reviews are everything I get to go and see at the cinema. I come home, I tell Sharon about it. I did Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle the other day, uh, Paddington 2, The Disaster Artist, the Lego Ninja Go movie. People have been asking me what I thought of Mother. Well, that's one of the quick reviews. I spent nearly an hour on Alien Covenant. Coming up, we've got The Greatest Showman, Coco, and a late one for Murder on the Orient Express. So come along to the Patreon, even if you're only going to throw in a buck a month. That still makes you part of this community. Oh, and one last thing. Check out School of Movies on YouTube. We've been putting up some really good videos recently. There were a couple on Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and I've started putting up little snippets of the Disney shows just to give people a little concentrated burst of the best stuff from these podcasts. So you can watch those, you can share them around with all your friends. Bring people to this podcast. Because nowhere near enough people are aware of this show. It is the best kept secret. Okay, we're going to end on I'll Make a Man Out of You. This was sung by Donny Osmond. And if you haven't seen it, check out Jackie Chan singing this in Cantonese whilst flipping around with a bow staff. It's awesome. And I actually think the MVP... Of this movie, the character that pulled its weight the absolute most was that arrow that at one point was attached to a piece of rope and holding suspended above a gorge. A woman, a man, a small dragon, a cricket, and a horse. That is one strong arrow. See you next week for Tarzan.
cutting gym. This guy's got him scared to death. Hope he doesn't see right through me. Now I really wish that I knew how to swim. We must be swift at the coursing river With all the force of a great typhoon With all the strength of a raging fire Mysterious as the dark side of the moon Time is racing toward us Till the Strength of a raging fire Mysterious 